Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Franci, and I am your host, and I want to begin by saying thank you for listening. On this show, I am having conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some amazing and extraordinary results in both their life and business. My intention is to inspire and help you learn and grow by having my guests share their journey of how they face and overcome their challenges, but also how they celebrate their many wins. And now let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest today, Derek Lobo, is a friend who's been on the show more than a couple of times. He is the founder and CEO of SVN Canada and the Derek A. Lobo and Associates, Inc. company. For more than 30 years, closer to 40, Derek has worked extensively in the apartment and student housing industry right across Canada and the United States, advising clients on all aspects of apartment ownership and development, ranging from feasibility analysis, financial modeling, design and construction, asset management, and leasing to dispositions and brokerage. He specializes in large and complex asset sales and has brokered transactions that are some of the largest that have taken place in Canada. But he's not here for any of that today. He's here to share his story about the book that he has written called The Self-Funding House. And this book addresses the mindset and the treating of your house as a business for those individuals, for those younger people perhaps that aspire to one day own a home. And with all the controversy saying that there's no possible way, it's too expensive and all the rest of it, Derek has created a thought process and a blueprint for what he calls the self-funding house. And we're gonna get into this conversation. I'm looking forward to it. And so without any other delays, Let's get this show started. Derek Lobo, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Thanks for joining me, my friend. Hey, Patrick. Good. It's uh, January 2023. I know. Uh, happy Happy New Year. I've been on your program a number of times. I look forward to being here today. Yeah. Thank you. So thanks for joining me. Now, we've got a real purpose for this because uh, you're releasing a brand new book, which is I'm really looking forward to, but it's slightly out of character or out of context for what you do versus what the book you're writing. So uh, tell me, what is the name of the book you're writing? Well, the book is called The Self-Funding House. And, uh, and it's, the, it's the, the revitalization of the dream of home ownership. Now, that's a tall order. It's, I mean, it's a very big topic these days because, of course, all you hear about is millennials will never own a home. And uh, young people will never be able to live into home ownership because of, you know, number one prices. Now it's interest rates. So you've actually wrote the book based on, no, they can. We just have to put a different plan together and maybe take a different approach. Is that the case? Yes, yes, yes. And I, I think I can summarize it almost in one sentence. To own a home today, if you're the average millennial with parents of average income, you have to become a landlord. Mm. You need that income from that accessory unit. You can call it a basement apartment. You can call it an accessory dwelling unit. You can call it a garage apartment. You can call it a backyard apartment. You can call it the laneway apartment, right? I guess you could call it roommates. 
Yeah, well, you know, let me just a quick uh, yeah, uh, sh share a quick context for that. So we've got a couple of young rain members, well, more than a couple, but specifically these two young rain members, male, they're, they don't know each other, by the way, but they did the same thing, which is exactly what you're talking about. They bought a house, a residence, bungalow in their case, uh, three bedroom bungalows with a basement suite. Uh, they're young as in their mid twenties and they've got, uh, two or three people living downstairs. They got a couple of roommates that they're buddies with upstairs and they're literally living in that house for free <laughs> because the rent that they're charging their friends covers the cost of that particular property. And occasionally they have to subsidize it on their own salary, but you know, yes. you know, the, w what an achievement. So that's really yes. what your book is about. You know, I was probably... 35 years old before I lived alone in my own dwelling. Wow. Right? Yeah. And, and what makes this particularly meaningful to me was, so, um, so, so I, I'm in my mid-60s, right? When I bought my first house, it was three times my income. Mm -hmm. Okay? Today, to buy your first house is 10 to 15 times your income. Okay? Whether that's fair or not, that doesn't really matter. That's just life. Yes, it right? is. Yeah. So the people I'm talking to are the people who are saying, yeah, it's not as easy for me to buy as my parents, but that's besides the point. I, I do want to own a home. And this idea of the self-funding house is the simplest idea in the world. It's been done forever. Your grandparents probably did it. A lot of immigrants, when they first came to Canada, did it, right? College students do it and things like that. All I've done is taking, taken a concept that's been around for a long time, but I'm creating what I what I'd say is a mind shift, right? So me, the author, writing to one reader, mm. okay? And that reader is typically a younger person, okay, who says, I'm not going to let this get in the way. In the future, it could be 30 times my income or 40 times my income. Who knows, right? But getting in the housing game is important, okay? Not being in the game can be catastrophically expensive, Right? So what I'm saying to younger people is, is there is a way for you to own a home, okay? And it can range in a variety of different ways. It can be you buy a house and you duplex it, right? You buy a house with your brother or sister and you just get in the game. I wouldn't recommend friends buying houses. I wouldn't. I just think there'd be too many problems, right? It's hard to, uh, it's hard to orchestrate a joint venture at, at that age and that early in life, given that things are coming at you and things change. Boyfriends change, girlfriends change, yeah. somebody gets a dog and you don't want all of it. But I think with a brother and sister, I think with a parent helping fund it, with an aunt or uncle helping fund it, I mean, there's many different ways to raise, and we cover all these in the book, but this is not, Patrick, a how-to book, okay? This is a mind shift book. Wealth is about a mind shift, okay? And so there's going to be three books in the series. Book number one is called A Self-Funding House. Book number two, which you're writing now is the blueprint for the self-funding house, and that is going to talk about the details and there's a learning portal to go with it. Book number three is self-funding house for stakeholders, and that's about politicians, municipalities, lawyers. You see what I mean? Because mm -hmm. a whole change has to happen, right, for us to solve. That's and this is just not a Canadian problem. This is a goal. Uh, this is a global problem. Okay, housing is foundational to the success of people. So let's go back a little bit um, on this, Derek. I mean, let's add some context to who you are in the scope of, you know, 
real estate. Yes. I mean, you've been playing this game for what, 40 plus years or 40 years? 30, so, 30 37 years. Yeah, yes. there you go. And so, but you're really into that multi-family commercial, yes. you know, big, big multi, yes. multi-million dollar properties. So why are you kind of taking a look at this? And this is almost feeling like you're scaling back a little bit in terms of context. Yeah. So yeah. what's your approach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't about money for me. This is a bit of a mission. This is about having a legacy. So first, what I do, I'm a commercial real estate broker. I'm blessed to be in the apartment business. Our average deal size is probably around $80 million. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you look at the deals we've done the last few years. So I sell big apartment buildings from big developers to institutions. I've got an expertise in new apartment construction, right? So I'm sitting here one day thinking to myself, okay, and I say this tongue in cheek, but with respect, I've helped make a lot of rich people richer. That's my job. Someone's got to do it, right? But at the end of the day, when I sort of pack it all in and, and look back on this, what, what, what's, what's my legacy, right? And then I thought to myself, okay, Patrick, you know the term moonshot? Yeah, yeah. John F. Kennedy said the moonshot, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it, So I thought, okay, I need a moonshot in my life. And this just started from just doodling around a little bit. Do you know what I'm just thinking and so on. thought, what's the biggest problem in the world, right? Well, climate change, I'm not going to solve that. Hunger, I'm not going to solve that. It was some big problems. But one of them is probably affordable housing. Heck, that's the business I'm in. So biggest problem in the world. Number two is, you can't solve a big problem without a radical solution. Otherwise, somebody would have thought of it already. So it needed a radical solution. And then the third was, this needs exponential growth. And you can't do that without technology. So those are, imagine drawing three circles, right? A huge problem, radical solution, and technology. And then all three intersect at sort of the answer. Okay? So here was my answer. Everybody knows we have an affordable housing challenge here. And by the way, it's not just for homeowners, it's for tenants as well. Yes. Right? Yes. And how do we have this problem? I'm actually going to lay the problem at the feet of government. They put in rent controls. They put in development charges. They put in restrictions. It got more and more expensive to build houses. So much of a cost of a house is the soft cost. 30 40% is probably the soft cost, not bricks and mortar. Right? Yes. So what we've done is with crazy legislation and so on. We just made it harder and harder, more expensive to build. Well, let's let's just and 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 Derek, not to. I want to interrupt just a little bit right there. I want to. I think I think there's some value in understanding for people to understand soft costs. And I mean, those are everything from you know development permits to the process of actually getting zoning and make sure zoning. I mean, to the hearings you have to have exactly to the architectural. It's the fees you pay. Yes. that are not hard. Soft costs. Yes. And, and, right? But not a lot of people necessarily understand that component of it. And I think it's just a good point to shine a light on so that there's a, another level of understanding right. what, what goes right. in and what drives some of these costs. I'm on your, you know, I'm totally on the same page as you when it comes to, you know, government. And, and that's at every level, by the way. That's federal. That's provincial. That's municipal. Uh, I say all the time, you know, the bureaucracy or the bureaucracy is really choking things down and limiting uh even our supply issue is is based on all of the things that have to get done just before you even put a you know a shovel in the ground so that's a good way to say it the money you spent before you put a shovel in the ground is a soft cost yes beautiful right okay and and it'd be shocking how how high it is right yeah so development charges for a house can be a hundred thousand dollars 
Yeah. That's but amazing. Like the money you pay, yeah, yeah. Before, no, nothing's happened. For the right to build it, you pay that much, right? Okay. Yes. So if I go back now, it's good to define that. But So I step back and said, okay, we've got a huge problem of affordable housing, both from a how do people afford a house, and the second is how do we create affordable rentals for people, right? Mm -hmm. The second is I need a radical solution. The radical solution is we leave government out of it. They <laughs> actually do less. They back they back out, beep, 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 and mm -hmm. they actually get out of it. Einstein said the people who create the problem will never create the solution. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So I thought, well, wait a minute. I want to do this bigger, faster, cheaper, and easier. So right now, the trajectory we're on says affordable housing gets worse before it gets better. We're bringing in 400,000 immigrants to Canada, right? Minimum, There's yeah. nowhere near enough for houses being built. So the problem is actually going to get worse. And we haven't even figured out the solution, okay? And everyone believes the solution is government. So my radical solution was, what if the government backed out of it and the average guy solved the problem? The Uberization of home ownership, of apartments, and so on. So let's, let's go back to Uber here. We created hundreds of thousands of vehicles that allow people to not own a car. And I know many people don't own a car who would have owned one normally. And we've given an opportunity to hundreds of thousands of people to now be in their own business with an asset they already own or can own, right? So we do not have a housing capacity problem or a capability problem. There's actually enough shelter. It's just in the wrong people's hands. It's not divided up properly. And the capability, this is 100-year-old technology to build a basement apartment or to build a backyard apartment, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's all there. It's all there, right? And so think about it even from an environmental problem. We actually have all these houses spread out in suburbia. The road's already there. The retail's already there. The hydro hookup's there. The sewer is there. All we need to do is just get more people. Why is someone living in a 3,000-square-foot house, right? And mm -hmm. so on. So what if we brought some simple principles, principles like, and I don't want the government to decree this because that's where the problem will occur. But what if every builder who built a house going forward roughed in an outside entrance to this to the side basement? Sure. What if they roughed in a heating system? What if they roughed it? What if they put deeper window wells? That cost is probably around $5,000. Yes. To do it after the fact is very complex. But there you go. You're creating that solution. Okay. Now, so... We've got this huge problem, affordable housing. The radical solution is the common man solves it. You know, how long would it take to build a basement apartment for uh, Patrick? Three months? Yeah. I mean, in theory, we could create a million units in three months. Mm -hmm. There's what, about seven, eight million homes in Canada, right? Yeah. If 10, 15% of the people decided to do this, like it's, all, it's, it's exciting just thinking about this, right? That... We could do someplace and that. And then the idea of, I thought, what's a good title for this? Well, it's the self-funding. I thought we'll call it the revenue house, the self-funding house. These guys you described earlier live rent-free. Okay? But the icing on the cake for me was, I did this when I was 23. Yeah. And so I wrote this book sort of like The Wealthy Barber or sort of like Michael Gerber's E-Myth. I, I weaved a little of my story through it. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's interesting that when I bought this, I didn't want to contemplate that. So I was like 23 or 24. I got married at 26, right? I already owned the house when I met Celia, my girlfriend, who's now my wife. I came with a triplex. 
But I often joked with her and said, if we had gotten married, and then I tried to buy the triplex, she would have stopped me. Because tenants, da-da-da-da, you see people get nervous about that, right? And it was such a cool house. It was through the three apartments, like one in the basement, one on the main floor, one on the ground floor. I lived in the basement first. Made sense. Single guy, saving money. I moved upstairs. I had upstairs tenant, downstairs tenant. My downstairs tenant married my upstairs tenant. <laughs> That's great. She then found me a tenant for the upstairs floor because they both moved downstairs. I interviewed her for the book. And she said, Derek, I cared about who lived on the third floor. That's why I found you someone. And she said, because you lived in the building, I knew you'd take care of it. Like, see these little things that go on the back of my mind. I went to her wedding. She came to mine. She babysat my children. Hmm. I think that the 10 tenants I've had in that house over that, wow, let me see, uh, five-year period maybe, mm-hmm. right? Any one of them that I walk across the street today would stop and say hello to me and shake my hand, mm-hmm. and I'd be happy to see them. Mm-hmm. I didn't think of my tenants. They, they, were my, they were my neighbors. They were my, you see what I'm saying? Now, here's the one trick I'm going to share with you that, that I learned. Everyone's scared about tenants. I've got a chapter in the book related to tenants. I've got a chapter on, um, I've got an appendix on how to raise a down payment. Fair enough. And so on. But the number one way, when, when you're, if I own an apartment building down the street with 100 tenants in it, okay? Mm-hmm. Somebody moves in and without knowing, they get a big dog and start, start smoking hashish mm-hmm. in the building. That's a problem, but it's not my wife's problem. It's not my family's problem. Someone's living in the basement. They start doing that. I got a big problem. Yeah. Right? That's what people are scared of. Well, you know, I've rented hundreds of hotel rooms. I've never trashed a hotel room. Not yet. Likely won't. Right? I've been in hundreds of Ubers. I've never destroyed the backseat of it. People generally don't do that. Right? But so what I did with the tenants was I would visit them where they were living now. Yeah. They were going to live right below me or right above me. This was a major decision for me. So I'd literally show up at the house unannounced. Mm-hmm. Uh, the neighborhood, we got to sign this for. I'd go see how they lived. That told me everything about them. I did my reference checks very carefully. I never had a delinquent rent. I never had a problem with a tenant, ever. If there was ever a noise, I told them. And I said, please tell me if I'm making a noise. One day, my tenant called me and she says, what are you cooking? I said, I told her, she goes, it smells delicious. I mean, that's the thing, right? It's about the screening process. It's about knowing how to do that. But you talked about the first book being about a shift of mindset, if you will. Yes. And tell me something about, you know, what do you see as a shift of mindset? Here's what I'm hearing, you know, from anecdotally and a little bit directly, you know, millennials don't think they can afford it. Um, Some are saying, no, I don't even want to own a home. That's not how we're wired these days. I want to be, I want to have more freedom. And I don't know that that if that is actually the truth or is that just them downplaying the fact that they can't hit that affordability spot? You know, that's, there's always that side of the, uh, the equation as well. So when we talk about mindset though, you've got the infamous uh, Robert Kiyosaki who, you know, pounds the drum going, you, do not own a house. It is not an investment. The bank owns the house. That's the bank's investment. Yet we, you and I know that to not really necessarily be true, given how long we've owned our homes for, you know, the build in uh, appreciation and the gain in equity that, you know, lots of boomers had by owning that home. So although Kiyosaki's argument has some merit to it, uh, depending on how you approach it and look at it, are you dealing, are you shining a light on that issue at all? Because at the end of the day, when you 
get a tenant in it or a mortgage helper or what, whatever context you want to provide it, it does make it an investment and it does mean that somebody else is at least helping you, know, you it, pay the, the mortgage. I, I like Robert uh, yeah. Kawasaki. I've read lots of his books. Yeah, but yeah. He just, I think he's just wrong here. I think there's a pride in home ownership, but he, that, that aside is worth a lot. The security of tenure yeah. is worth a lot, okay? Mm -hmm. But historically, it has been the base of the foundation of most people's wealth, mm -hmm. of the average man, mm -hmm. right? And I, so I, th I think it is important. I, I think it's very important to do it. But I think I agree with you. Some people are saying, I've given up on the home of home ownership, uh, on the vision, because quite frankly, it's just an easier thing to say. And that might be true for some people. I haven't written this book for everybody. I think the target reader here is the younger person, let's say between 24 and 35 or maybe 40, somewhere around there. I also think it's for their parents. Mm. I actually see parents buying the book and giving it to their children. I see parents saying, you know what? I'm prepared to fund this a little bit. I can't, I can't give you all the money to buy the house. I can't give you all the down payment, but maybe I can do my part. Fair enough. Well, we saw that happening. I mean, that's been happening a lot over the oh, over many years, but it's certain happened yes. a lot over the past three years. Oh. Uh, those numbers went through the roof of the you know the gifting that went on of down payments for young children because parents believed and many boomers believed that you know when they look at their own foundation, their own financial foundation, it was it's built in a home that they bought and paid for over many years, and they want that legacy for their own children. As a matter of fact, uh, there's lots of stories out about parents who bought the house with when their children were were are still toddlers, but they bought the house knowing and saying, no, I want to, I want to make sure that my children have a home. I'm buying that home now. So whether right or wrong decision, you know, they, they themselves said, no, I'll be a landlord and then have that house available. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, you know, it'll be less affordable in 15 years from now than it is today. So that's how yes. they approached you know, it. You know, the fact that about 70% of Canadians are homeowners yeah. tells you that home ownership is widely believed as the way to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the other factor that young people could consider is it's generally believed you can buy your first house, then you trade up to your second house, then you trade up to your third and final house. Well, what if you could buy your third and final house now and subdivide it and then just take it over as you need it, mm -hmm. right? So in this house that I bought, think of them as three Lego blocks, right? So I lived in the basement, then I lived at some of the middle floor, a couple on the middle floor, and a young girl on the top floor. Mm -hmm. When I got married, I moved up to the middle floor. Somebody else came to the basement. When I had my first child, there was enough room on the ground floor. When we had our second child, we took over the top floor. So now we had the second, the first floor, and the second floor. The base was still rental. When I started my business, that became my new office. That became my office. So did you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Now, I sold the house. I wish I didn't. Okay. Had I stayed in the house and my children got married and moved out, I could have gone back to that model again. Mm -hmm. No, no, Patrick, one of my children could have come and lived there. Sure. Even better. Two of my children could have lived there. Do you see my point? Yeah. I would have bought the house next door and put in a pool in my backyard. Intergenerational living was the way we lived. And I'm not sure that we're that smart living far away from our parents. You know, it's, it's interesting that what you did was very proactive in your thinking, whatever drove that with your parents or whatever instilled that thought process in you. And Poverty what, drove it. Well, there you go. I but, couldn't afford us. Well, but I, I guess at the end of the day, when you look back in hindsight and when you look at the book that you're writing today, you're talking about 
being proactive in a thought process, actually creating a plan as opposed to being reactive, which, reactive. which what you were, because you're kind of like, I, I can't afford a house. I need a place to live. This is an approach that I want to take. But now with all of that experience and what you've learned over so many years and just how common or how driven people are to own a home, you can put a plan together. And this is really what you're saying. You put a plan together. And in your case, you're even looking at it going, like many real estate investors going, you know, worst thing I ever did was sell that piece of property, right? I should have kept it. You know, there's how many times have we heard that story before? And Every and, building you've ever bought, yes. Yeah, and, and, and when you look at it, when you consider that, that being that proactive, putting a plan together, this is a proven plan. This works. We've seen it work. You've seen it work. You know, you're writing a book on it, which I think is, I'm I'm stoked about it. That's a very, very exciting thing to be doing. And I think it is a great legacy for you. When does the second book out? Because now you've got my interest. I'm going, okay, well, hold it. When does the second book come out? When am I going to get into some more meat and potato on this? Yes, yes, yes. So we're writing the second book now. Mm-hmm. Um, it took us about six months to write this yeah and, and i i it could take a lot longer i had a team of people help me sure i i i authored the book yes i of didn't course. write it does yeah, yeah, that yeah. make sense yeah of course yes 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 and then graphic artists and production and then you know etc cetera, etc cetera. the second book is the blueprint now i'm going to co-write that with some people mm-hmm. who are experts in home conversions and builders so mm. the the second book the blueprint uh for self-funding house this is for builders contractors and do-it-yourselfers Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. I am not saying everybody does this on their own. Okay. I wouldn't do it on my own. I, that's not who I am. That's not my style. I'll hire someone to do it. Right. Yeah. But the actual development part of it is relatively straightforward. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got to meet certain building codes. By the way, those building codes are changing. Okay. And in Ontario, Doug Ford has now proposed that any single family lot can have a duplex or a triplex on it. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. And, and so I can see this changing across. In California, you're now allowed to build an accessory dwelling unit. I think in 2016, there were 1,000 built. In 2021, there were 24,000 built. There's whole businesses that have been built on this. There's investors who help you fund it, right? So I think you're going to see this being a worldwide movement. Look, when I started writing this, I gave myself 25 years to make it work, okay? About three months into it, the Premier of Ontario came out and said, because I saw that as the biggest challenge, top of the mindset, that's why I was writing three books. That mindset's already occurred. Mm-hmm. And if it happens in the largest province in Canada, it can spread from there, right? It's already happening in California. And one of the things we have to do is we've got to change the zoning so we don't pit neighbor against neighbor. If I follow the rules, then my neighbor can't object. I would say to him, you should go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. By the way, my tenants watched out for the property. When I was on vacation, they watered the lawn, they shoveled the snow. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It does not have to be an adversarial relationship. That's more media hype, right? But choose your people carefully. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring this up only in that um, Edmonton recently put a, they've changed the zoning in some of those areas, those neighborhoods where guys were doing infills, you know, taking down, you know, houses built in the thirties, forties, that kind of thing, knocking them down and putting houses in. And the actual city of Edmonton workers said, this is, 
there's 14 steps that a developer's got to go through to build something here, and it makes no sense. Why don't we rezone, re and and change the protocol for building? And you can now go into those neighborhoods, by the way, and build uh, and put in, let's say, a small business like a lawyer's office, for example, yes, yes. combined with residential. So to your point, you could literally have a sign on your door. It you know could even look a little bit commercial, but ultimately you could live in that same building if that's what you wanted to do. Daycares yeah. can go in there. So the whole point of it was to mix that within the residential. All to say this is that you know I think there's a there is definitely some it's being taken serious in terms of how cities and or you know provinces are looking at the changes that they need to make in order to accommodate some affordability and of course some supply. Yes. And and think about it. How could we possibly create a million units mm -hmm. in theory in one year? There's no other way to do it. Mm -hmm. It takes five years just to get zoning. Mm -hmm. A million people putting a million basement apartments. Zero yeah. cost of the tax. No, no, here's the better part. They actually pay more taxes. It actually puts money into the coffers of the municipality, not take it out. It's fantastic. No roads, no sewers, no schools, no hydro lines. Okay, capacity well, and capability already there. Okay, well, I love the fact that you've got this book coming out and uh, we're certainly going to be pushing that out there and uh, getting it into our rain community, letting them know that it's there. It's amazing, I think, that real estate investors are not necessarily thinking like that. We would think they would in terms of how can we support our children. Yeah. Not so much. I don't know if they think that way all the time. You know, I think this will be a, yeah. a really good reminder that, hey, you you can do it with your own kids too. So I think that's great. Yes, yes, yes. But so so you can find the there's a landing page now for it, right? Uh, at the selffundinghousebook.com. Beautiful. So the title of the book, the selffundinghousebook.com. Yep. Okay. Uh, and the webpage, there'll be other resources there and so on. But I think that... What I started about thinking about was, you know, how did we get people in the 60s and 70s, if somebody visited your house and they drank too much, you let them drive home. Just didn't seem to be your responsibility. Yeah. We would never let that happen today. No. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the climate change movement uh, is from, it's been driven by the people top, but we've had a change of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Right? So this change of consciousness now affects the homeowner. The tenant, the municipality, lenders have to get on board, mm -hmm. right? Because right now they don't fully recognize the income from a basement apartment. Well, why wouldn't they? I maybe build at a 10% vacancy rate because, you know, you lose one month's rent or something like that, right? But they don't recognize, they recognize it and so on. But so many benefits come from it. You can buy one house and live in it forever. No real estate brokerage fees, no transactions. You just take over more of that. Then you can shrink it back down again as you get older. Your children can live there, right? And you don't have the enormous finesse. You build in resiliency. If you lose your job, you won't lose your house. Beautiful. Like massive, so massive benefits, right? Yeah. And it can be done. So I thought, Patrick, when I wrote this book, that my target reader was just the guy wanting to buy and convert a house. Mm -hmm. My developer clients love the idea. Because now let's think about it. If I can afford a million-dollar house based on my income, if I put an accessory unit, I can afford a $1.25 million house. That extra income, didn't you just see my point? Yes, of course. Or, yes, yes, yes. It's so, math. Yeah, yeah, it's math. And, and I think some 
parts of the world are progressive. In Australia and New Zealand, they have called a battle axe housing. They like to put something in your front yard, right? Um, in, uh, in San Diego, they have six floor plans with all the architectural drawings you can download to build an accessory dwelling unit. Wow. Dude, here it is. Go do it. Yeah. Solves the housing problem, pays more taxes. Solves the rental problem, right? Yep. I, I can't see any objection to it other than people saying, I don't want that beside me. Well, you do that with very clear zoning rules. You follow these rules, you can do it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's one of the battles that we fit in, you know, that we bump up against in some of these, you know, like in a Toronto, Vancouver, the more densified areas, well, but everywhere, right. you know, is really the nimbyism and, and what, you know, the, what contractors or builders have to face in uh, some cases to get something put in there in oh, terms of the, the current hurdles are too much for the average person. Yeah. Way too much. Yeah. Right. It'll spur on a whole business of P and the price will go down for building these units. Okay, so let's let's kind of move on from the book conversation, Derek, because I think this plays into it and it's part of it, but it's not directly with the book. But I want to talk about what's going on in the world right now in terms of uh, interest rates. You know, you yep. mentioned, you know, when you and I were buying a home, yeah, it was maybe two or three times our income, but we were also bumping up against interest rates of 18%, depending exactly. on where you're at. Exactly. So, you know. hey, guys, guys, hey, young people, it wasn't as good as it seems. Yeah. Because my first mortgage was uh, 21%. Exactly. And uh, I think mine was 18 or 19 yeah. percent. And, uh, you know, I was taking home 300 bucks a week or something, you know, like so there, there was there was a lot of, you know, you, it, there was a relativity that was, yeah. you know, there at the time as well. So when we look at what's happening with interest rates today, we look at what's happening economically today. I mean, you're like me, you're always uh, digging into the economics of what's going on globally, you know, the geopolitical issues. Sure. Uh, so what do you see, you know, as we go into this in this conversation today, we've got, you know, some mortgage rates, you know, people are having to qualify at seven and a half percent. Bank of Canada rates, what is it, four and a quarter, I think, today, or four yeah. percent going to four and a quarter or four and a quarter going to four and a half. I've lost track. But the point is, is that we've got these uh, rates. What do you see in the future? Well, you know, I try and maybe look at the world from my children's perspective, right? Because they're in their 30s, mm -hmm. right? And so from my perspective, let's say I'm comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. So if the price of food doubles, it's annoying for me, mm -hmm. but I'm still eating the same food. Sure. Right? Yeah. If the price of food doubles and you're living in Egypt, food is 50% of your budget. Mm -hmm. It's not gone to 100% of your budget, mm -hmm. right? So I think you have to sort of look at it in a relative basis as to where you are, right? So if you have a uh, indexed pension plan and you work for the government of Canada, well, you know, blah, blah. It's Life's sorry. good. <laughs> but, right, right, right. But, but from a younger person, I think what I'd want to be doing is building resiliency into my life, right? So if I'm living in a triplex and I'm taking in $2,500 a month in rent, fair enough, mm -hmm. I know I can support my mortgage and my taxes with that. Maybe I'm not paying down the mortgage because the other thing you can do is pay down your mortgage faster with your payment, mm -hmm. right? But I'm resilient. Fair enough? Yes. And so that's the first thing I'd want to kind of think about is the next 30 or 40 years are not going to look like the last 30 or 40 years. They've been a, they've been a beautiful time. They really have to, one of the most extraordinary times in history, right? Mm -hmm. The next 30 or 40 years aren't going to be that, right? 
history doesn't repeat itself. It rhymes. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Right? Interest rates are high. In, uh, historically, prime has always been above inflation. It's not right now. For the last 40 years, look at the graph. Inflation here, prime on top of it. Mm -hmm. Prime should be higher than inflation. Pick a number for inflation. Interest rates should be higher than that. And they're not right now. Right? So my gut feel is interest rates, and nobody knows. I don't know. You don't know, right? No. But if I had to, if I had to guess, and it's only worth that a guess, interest rates remain high for a little bit of time. Inflation doesn't get wrestled to the ground um, as quickly as people say. Two percent is probably not the case, but who knows, right? We go into a massive recession, you see super contraction. Maybe they do, right? Who knows? Who knows? I would say, be prepared for multiple outcomes. Housing is fundamental. Mm -hmm. It's fundamental. It, it, um, and I'll use one more analogy that, you know, when immigrants come to Canada, they get reborn. It's, 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 a, it's a new life. And I would argue that of the components of that new life are your job, your children's education, and your housing. And when immigrants come here and they're living in makeshift accommodation, da, 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 they're not going to be great Canadians or great Americans. It's a forget about even doing the right thing. It makes good sense for us to make sure that people are properly housed because when they're properly housed, there's more likely the better fed, they're sleeping better, their families are better, and that relates to it. So housing is the, I think, the sort of base. It's like sleep in your body. We don't talk about it a lot, but sleep's really important. Housing is the foundation of success. And if people can't afford that foundation and they're having to move, they're having to you know, do different things, then that component is taken away from them. Well, we have, you know, at this point, you know, today, you know, over half a million immigrants coming into the country. We've got refugees, yeah. we've got international students. Yeah. I think our population grew by 850,000 in 2022, something along yes. that line. It was yeah. it was dramatic. It was big. And yeah. as, you know, as citizens of this country, we can complain a lot. And we yeah. can find a lot to complain about, feel very yep. justified in that complaining. But when we, you know, when you speak to some of the immigrants and it's hard for them coming to this country and getting hit with this inevitable, holy cow, things are more expensive than I thought. Things are colder than I expected. You know, there's, you know, I couldn't get quite the job that I thought I would be getting. You know, I was doing this when I was back in at home. But guess what? They're also looking at it and going, you guys complain about your leader and you complain about politics and we're justified in doing that. That, but you should come from where I came from, and then you'll understand what politics is all about, and you'll understand what dictators are all about, and what you know uh, military control is. I mean, there's all sorts of stories, and so as much as we complain about Canada, you know, the point of it, my my point being is, is that we have to step back from it and have first off have some appreciation for what we have got. It's like you know we can complain about uh, you know six percent mortgage rates, but that's also relative to what's going on in the world and know that or at least and probably anticipate that housing will remain strong in Canada just strictly because of the conversation we're having right now, which is supply and demand. And how do we increase supply? How do we uh, allow some of our young people, those millennials to buy a home? And this is really about putting a plan together and understanding what's going on economically. Yeah. And I think you have to sort of take out, you're playing the long game when you buy a house. Yes. In fact, what other game is there than the long game in life, mm -hmm. right? So if you take out these and you just look at it historically, mm -hmm. right? I don't know the numbers, but I'm not going to be far off. A $100,000 house 40 years ago is worth a million dollars today. Mm -hmm. Probably more. Probably okay? more, yeah. So 
a million dollar house today is going to be worth how much in the future? Yeah. $10 million, sorry. Yeah, yeah, $10 million. There, right? there's, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So there's, you know, you make a really interesting point, which is it is a long game. And sadly, what happens is, and we've seen it over the past couple of years, is there was a lot of emotionality that was driving decisions by people, you know, and then that got investors involved, which was also part of the problem, which was also driving some of the costs of real estate, et cetera. You know, there's a story I'll share with you that it's kind of, I always found it quite a, an interesting thought, you know, it was about your great grandfather, you know, one day when he was a young man, he had made some money, he had worked really hard and he's sitting down one day and he goes, you know something? He says, uh, I'm going to, buy this home and it's going to be passed on to my grandchildren or my great-grandchildren. And then he had saved up enough money and he took an ounce of gold and he put it along with the title of that home. And then he worked really hard again and he came up with another $20. Now, $20 that many years ago, that was a lot of money. That was like 10 trips from the car to the house with groceries. So he put it all in a box, you know, and he said, okay, this is for my grandchildren or my great grandchildren. And many years later, the family opens the box and, uh, you know, you've got the title to a house that he paid, you know, $3,500 for is now worth 350,000 or it's worth a million dollars. He looks at that piece of gold or you look at that piece of gold that back then was $35 would buy you, uh, the story is uh, an ounce a of gold, a suit, <laughs> a, a hotel room and a meal. And today it still does that. And then yeah. you look at the 20 bucks and, you know, buys you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So, so, you know, when we look at how we put our capital and how we invest for the future, we do have to, in fact, to your point, think long term and uh, put the long game to work, knowing that real estate is something that does, in fact, it, regardless of what Robert Kiyosaki might think, it, it's a big part of uh, family wealth. Yeah. And I think part of it is, you know, when you're younger, let's say you're 25, 35 seems a long way away. Mm hmm. When you're 55, 65 is not that far away. Yeah. And when you're 65, 75, I, time sort of compresses a wisdom too, I think, right? Yes. So how do you, when you're younger, play the long game? When you're instinctively kind of playing the short game, right? You're looking for a spouse. You're changing careers. There's so many other things in your life that are competing for your money and your time and your attention. Mm -hmm. But once you get that, house bought or that duplex or triplex built, it was no work for me once it was done, right? It was no work. I mean, I actually had a friend who helped me convert the basement and so on. He owed me some money. I just said, help me figure, figure this out, mm -hmm. right? But once it was done, I had no more work except to cash two rent checks every month. Sure. Right? And so it's, uh, I would say it was very, oh, and my mortgage payments, were the same as I would have been if I were living in a way smaller house or renting an apartment mm -hmm. because I was getting two other incomes. Now, back then, that was enough money to support the entire house. My payment went towards my mortgage. I paid off that house in record time. Fair enough, but that was my goal. A right. lot of people would have said, oh, well, you know, we'll just have extra money to buy a better car or something like that. Now, that would have been fine mm -hmm. for whatever you want to do, right? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I can't think of something... You, look, getting an education is expensive in four years of university. I can't think of something as easy to do that can have as long-term an impact. Than, and I'm not talking about, you know, you've got investors here. I'm talking about to your investors, your children. I'm talking about becoming a real estate investor. I'm talking about securing a fundamental need 
fundamental want, actually. You don't need a house. You can always rent, right? But I'm talking about securing this early in your life. And then the benefits, let, let, let me say it this way. Your first home is also your first business. It is. Patrick, I would not be here talking to you here today as a real estate expert had I not bought that triplex. 100%. It gave me, it, it taught me how to rent apartments. It taught me how to keep the books. It, I had to file an income tax return. I was taking income at expenses. Taught me a lot about taxes. It's for another day. But yeah, I, I think the, so I'm going to say two things. How do young people become homeowners today? It's to become a landlord. Mm-hmm. Number two, your first house is your first business. Extraordinary skills are going to be learned. And so I, I, I think about what if Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos had bought a triplex and gotten next up, we wouldn't have a housing problem because those smart dudes would have figured it out. They would have gone exponential. Yeah, they would have taken it out to right? a whole next level. So yeah. here's the other thing I've learned. My business involves me with the most successful developers in Canada, okay? Mm-hmm. Almost all of them started building a house. This is the first thing they did. So imagine, Patrick, by doing what you and I are doing today, how many developers could we inspire for the future? Every developer started off building one house. Maybe in your audience here, there's a bunch of people who are future developers, mm-hmm. right? Build one house. The worst case scenario is you have a fully paid off house in a shorter period of time, right? That you can live intergenerationally, you can run your business from, blah, 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 right? Best case is we create home builders that solve the problem for us. Do you think uh, today this is more philosophical and just yes. more about what you see? I mean, you've got 11 grandchildren, you've got uh, your kids and your observation. You know, you and I were probably similar in that we learned early on or we knew to live below our means. Uh, yes. That as much as we wanted that new car or that new whatever, uh, we weren't prepared to go into debt for it or put it on our credit card. And it seems that that might be shifting now. I don't know that. I don't, I haven't looked at the facts of that, but what's your thought on, you know, do you think that kids are prepared to do that from your own point of view, your conversations maybe that you've had with your own kids? Do you think they're willing to kind of live within their means or, and and I guess maybe cheap money's gone away. Maybe they're not going to have a choice. Yeah. 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 I know, you know, uh, Nothing creates, uh, you know, necessity is the necessity, right? Like, yeah. I mean, sometimes I just got to do it. But I think that uh, the, the idea of, like, I'm all in favor of self-liquidating debt, mm-hmm. okay? I'm not in favor of non-liquidating debt. So taking a vacation, restaurant meals, and so on, on your credit card is not liquidating. At this, I think I could see boring for two things when I'm young. My education yeah. and my house. Yeah. And if you... Borrow well for education, that's self-liquidating. It's going to get you the job to pay that off. Mm-hmm. And the house is self-liquidating because you're going to pay off the house. And it's going to be some choppy times. And we're not talking about a one or two year vision here. We're talking about lifetime vision, right? So pick the house you want in the neighborhood you want to wind up in. It may not be young and trendy, but maybe that's not where you want to be in 10 or 20 years, right? Neighbors change anyway. So I think that the view that people have, and maybe, and this is where you're going to have to do some self-reflection. Maybe you're just buying into the narrative, oh, I'll never own a home. Maybe you don't believe that. Maybe this book, okay, will show you that this is possible, okay? I'm not going to be eating bread and water and onions, Mm -hmm. right? I'm getting additional income to help me do this, right? 
And I think you still take vacations. I think you still go to good restaurants. That's part of life, right? Uh, you're, 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 you, you never get back. You never get your youth back, right? And so on. But I think the pride of home ownership, you know, I never ever did when I was single, I never did house parties. I think I was on a house party. Once I had a house, I actually wanted to have them. Did that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, a, a $40 bottle of wine, that's a good bottle of wine for where I come from, Patrick. It is. Okay. A good bottle of Amarone is 40 bucks. Sure. You go to a restaurant, that's 160 bucks mm-hmm. for $200. Yeah. Right? So I can cook the food. I can get the really good bottle of wine. And you know, right? You know what I'm saying? I, I 100% know what you're saying. We uh, we entertain at home all the time and we don't do a lot of restaurants because, you know, we you know, we cook all our meals because we love to cook. And well, I shouldn't say we yeah. so much, my wife. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But we've certainly adopted that. But we've always been of that mindset. You know, it's interesting is that, you know, when we talk with, you know, when we discuss how can kids create net worth, how can they grow yes. and uh, expand in terms of their, you know, their own financial health, we know that owning a home is to do that. Your book really gives them a way to do that. But there's another part of that education process that I still, you know, because we're on the, I think we're on the topic, you know, of how do we support a younger generation of people to look at the world and create that financial future for themselves. And we know owning a home is one of those ways, you know, it's, it's it's the bedrock. It is really a foundational part of it. And, you know, it was interesting, uh, Charles Munger, Charlie Munger, you know, uh, Warren Buffett's partner, you know, I watched an interview with him not that long ago, actually. And, uh, you know, he made a statement that it isn't greed that drives people to do foolish things with money. Uh, something along that line. It, it is envy. And envy is what has created the debt bubble that we live in and a big part of it. And it was interesting that just before hearing him say that, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was going to go out and he was going to buy this big earth mover. He lives out in the country near me. And I and he's, and, I'm, and he uses it, but he's renting one. And he says it's cost me a couple grand a week. And I said, well, what would it cost you to buy a new one? And he goes, oh, about 150 grand. And I go, man, I could rent a lot of times for 150 grand and then not have to service it. And he goes, yeah, but he goes, you know, but this neighbor owns a helicopter and this guy owns two of these and da, da, da. And I, and I looked at him and I just said to him, I said, you know something? Here's a question maybe you want to ask yourself. If n- nobody knows you are going to own it, nobody knew that you owned it, would you still buy it? And he kind of looked at me and he goes, that's a good question. And I, I've, I've, I've really used that question a lot in different, you know, different scenarios and on my podcast and in my coaching and the things that we do, because it is interesting. It changes the answer. If you really are honest, you know, if, if nobody knew you owned it, would you still buy it? And I've asked that question and some people go, yeah, you know, I would buy that, you know, $3,000 suit just because it makes me feel good. It doesn't matter that somebody else is seeing it or that piece of clothing or, or whatever it is. For those, some items. Some items. And, and there is that. But how often are things being bought, the upgrade to the car, you know, the more expensive car, the, the upgrade to whatever. And it is driven by that envy of others. And there's yeah. more envy than ever, I believe, given what's going on in the social uh, media world yeah. with TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and all the things that are out there, those moments in time, as we know, can really push those buttons. And I think that's also part of this conversation, in my view, if we're, you know, if we're going to support, you know, that, that particular cohort, you know, to 
create a financial future and own a home and show them how to do it. I think that's also got to be part of the conversation. That's just me, Derek. It's just up there for conversation. It's all philosophical. No, but I, I, you know, I, I really like what you said. So let's talk about envy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the antidote to envy is innovation, mm. right? So tell me more. What you want to do is be hanging around successful people and learning from them, right? And what envy says is, you actually want to drag the people around you down to your level. You know, you stop smoking or you want it and your friend stops. You say, you have a cigarette, it won't hurt. Well, that's not a friend, right? Mm-hmm. So first thing I'd say is about this envy situation is start taking advice from people who actually done it, not the ones who haven't done it. Mm-hmm. So if my buddy's all out, you found a house, you're crazy, let's go live. Well, that's not the thing I want to take advice from, right? Take advice from people who've done it. Patrick, you and I have done it. Mm-hmm. Fair enough? Yep. Your mentors in all likelihood should be older than you. All my mentors were older than me, usually by 20 or 30 years, okay? Wisdom, right? The other thing too is when you hang around with good people, you're gonna have better habits, okay? I always try and be the youngest or the, sorry, the oldest, dumbest guy in the room. That's the best place to be, I love it. Fair enough, right, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want friends who are cheering on my success, not pretending to. Mm-hmm. Right. Look, I see this happen all the time. I see it happen with uh, people who have uh, boyfriends or girlfriends. Mm-hmm. Their friend says, "Oh, girl, yeah, he's okay, and he's not okay, and everybody knows he's not okay." Mm-hmm. But your friends have told you that. Do you see my point? Yeah. Right. And the best thing you can do for a friend is say that person's not okay. Yeah. You're wasting your time and your youth dating them. And how many? How many? I I, I use women as examples. I had three daughters. Right. Mm-hmm. So they all had friends and I'm just more in that space. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But how many young women have said to me, I wish my father or a girl is dating a guy for five years and then he breaks up with her or she was. And the, the dad says, yeah, I never knew he was. I knew he wasn't right for you. Well, golly gosh, dad, why didn't you say that in month one? Yeah. Right. And I don't know why I got this topic, right? but it's one of my sort of pet peeves. Good friends tell you the stuff you don't want to hear. Not just agree with you and so on. Well, I think it's just important as well, right? Is that, you know, young people uh, are discovering, they're not even sure what their values are necessarily, and they're discovering their values. So they actually will sometimes compromise their values, not knowing what they are, to be in a space that, you know, puts them out of integrity. They don't believe in those things, yet they're there. And I think there's a, a strong message about that parents can give to their kids and uh, even young millennials, which is, be cautious about who your friends are. You know, are they, are they, you know, are they there to support you really? Are you there to support each other? And do you share kind of common goals, common values? Are you all inspired to do certain things? You know, whether that be a, you know, a contribution to the community or volunteer no, good things, or, good things. you know, whatever yes. that might be, you know, or no. are you there to compete and bring each other down? And th- those are really important kind of insights to provide, I think, for kids and, and yeah. millennials need to, to kind of look at it and make choices differently sometimes. Now, let me give you, let me give you an example of self-funding house idea. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I had six, there were six kids in my family. Mm-hmm. I was the eldest of six. I've had three daughters. Of those nine people, Four people have self-funding houses. Wow. Now, they all thought it was their idea. Good for them. <laughs> Good but for them. I think somewhere in the back of their mind, they yeah. said, didn't dad do that? Didn't Derek do that? Yeah. Right? Well, it's like, what's going to make me drive an Uber? Mm-hmm. Never heard of it. Somebody I know does it. So what we're going to create 
is a community of people who've had this self-funding house. Mm-hmm. Okay? Do regular webinars for them. Because you're going to have tenant problems. You're going to have financing problems. Your wives are going to need the support. You might have a session for your children to do this. Right? So I believe that this solves so many problems. Right? I agree. Uh, at so many levels, quickly. Bigger, faster, cheaper, easier. I think there's what's interesting about this as well, Derek, is what I kind of like about the thought process is that this really is encouraging I think anybody who's, you know, interested in this thought process to actually be in a thought process, to actually start putting a plan together and then saying, okay, let's work backwards from this intended outcome. And how do I actually pull this off? Because now it gives them an option. Oh, here's a way to do it. Never thought of that. Let's learn more about that. Let's actually set that as a goal. And then let's work backwards from that outcome. And you're actually, you know, providing insights and steps into how to do that, how to pull that off. I think it's so valuable valuable for people in the space of education because they look at housing as they're reading the headlines as you know they're reading the headlines the world's coming to an end mm-hmm. housing's going to you know fall through the you know it's going to bust there's a bubble there's a whatever it is that's going to whatever clickbait they're going to use to sell more newspapers or more articles you know they're going to make it doom and gloom and if that's really mainstream media if that's what many people are buying into which they do uh, this gives them a, an option to say oh, hold it i can look at this differently and i think that's really really powerful yeah well no i i, I think you're right i mean there's there's a market timing factor so if you think the market's gonna sink then wait but save up your money get your plan together so to me everything starts with a thought mm-hmm. you just have to have the thought okay so that's what my job here is that's what, what our job is patrick right for real estate investments we want to give you the right thought and thinking tools to start with this thing fair enough so first you have to have the thought then you have to have the commitment to do it. You start saving money. Fair enough. You start reaching out to people to build up a down payment fund, right? Then you have the commitment to do it, right? And finally, then you have the capability. Mm-hmm. Your second one is way easier. This is not heavy lifting. 70% of Canadians buy a house. Okay, that's common. Fair enough. A small, small percentage, 1%, put in an accessory dwelling unit. It's not that hard to do. Mm-hmm. In three months, you're done. And then you're back to the other 70% of case after collecting a rent check. Yeah. So I want to move on to a topic while I got you on before we wind down here, Derek. I want to pick your brain. This has been fun. I want to pick your brain, my friend. You're in the multifamily space. We see what's happening with the lack of supply. We hear about rents, you know, climbing. It was interesting. I'll just share this with you. Um, I was, was, uh, what's the word I want to use? I'm, anyways, I'm looking, I'm doing some research, I'm looking at interest rates, but you know, there's a direct correlation with rising rates and rising interest rates. And I went, oh, isn't it, look at this correlation that as interest rates are going up, so are rents. So I went back to, I don't know, 1990, 1985. Well, guess what? That is in fact the case. There is a direct correlation between rents and rise, rising rents and rising interest rates. And I thought, I just thought that was interesting. People don't necessarily think about it and it makes sense. You know, you know, but we don't necessarily correlate that. Anyways, that's a little bit long-winded. But when we look at the supply and demand side of things, you're in that multifamily space. What is what are you seeing? Are you seeing more people? Is is more multifamily being built? Is stuff being yes. converted? Yep. What's happening in the world? Well, well, so what drives multifamily development is rent. Mm-hmm. If the rent's not high enough, you can't put multifamily. Okay. Yeah. So 
right now, everybody agrees there's a shortage of rental housing. Yes. And there's an influx of people coming into the country. Mm -hmm. That's going to cause rents to rise. Yes. If rents rise, that means the rent for your basement unit, your backyard unit's going to rise. It's actually going to be better. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. Yeah. Second one is when interest rates go up, people get forced out of the whole market so they become renters. Yeah. Good quality renters. Yes. Very good These quality. are relatively high-income people. Yeah. They're not going to go live in a $500 apartment. You build a beautiful 1500 accessory suite, they'll be great residents too. Maybe they'll only stay two, three years. Mm -hmm. Maybe they are saving for a house. Mm -hmm. Maybe they'll buy your house, right? There's so many stories like this that have occurred, mm -hmm. right? Um, and things like that. So I think that, yes, rents, it's a good observation you made. I think it's correct. And that, and the reason that they rise is because the cost of home ownership goes up. People are forced out, so they stay as renters. Yeah. And it's the higher end people mm -hmm. that do that, right? So, yeah, so... So the, the current scenario of rising rents, okay, is good for the concept of the self-funding house because rising rents means you get more money from them to pay the mortgage or to buy a bigger, better house. I mean, the one thing I want people to remember, and I said it earlier, you can buy your final house now. You don't need to start a little townhouse, go to a duplex. You can buy that nice big house where you want to, right? And just compartmentalize it and take it over but then even better, move it back again. Mm -hmm. You've also created more value for that house because there's going to be people who are going to see that value. Wait a minute. You know, Patrick, you don't buy a house based on the price. You buy it based on the mortgage you can get. Mm -hmm. Right? And you now have more mortgage money to buy that house. And buyers are going to see it that way. Well, it, it also, you know, back to your point earlier around resilience, you know, one of the things that's happening aside from mortgage rates increasing and the cost of a line of credit or the cost of, you know, a mortgage, uh, we've got, you know, increasing food prices, we've got in, uh, increasing fuel costs, which are, Energy, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, we are, you know, people have less uh, disposable income because of that. So when you talk about resilience, you know, to your point earlier, you know, food goes up and it's inconvenient and it's a little annoying, but it doesn't shut us down from what we're going to eat that day. And, you know, when we look at disposable income and for many, uh, as food prices rise, as, you know, gas is up and down, I think we're going to see an increase in gas in the future, but that's a different conversation. The point is, is that when you give yourself a little breathing room by having and owning a self-funded house, you're still gaining that equity, but you're giving yourself some breathing room in terms of how you manage the cost of that particular property so that when food does go up or when gas does go up or whatever's happening economically, that that really is the resilience that you're talking about, is that breathing room. You could lose move. your job yes. and not lose your house. Yes. If you're fully, if you're fully mortgaged and you lose your job, you can't pay a mortgage payment. Yeah. Fair enough? Yep. Well, Derek, I appreciate your time today. I know you're not feeling the best. You sound great, though. You pulled it off. So uh, I want to say thanks for joining me on the podcast today. I think some great insights. Looking forward to the book. Uh, we'll make sure that we put all the links and descriptions in uh or all the links to the book and uh, websites, et cetera, in the description. So people that are interested can take a look and uh, grab that book. And uh, thanks, for yeah. your, for, thanks for your time yeah, and today. If people, and if people enjoyed this conversation and they really believe what I've said about the self-funding house, put it on your social media. Oh, by the way, the, the, Patrick, the book is $20. Yeah. Like yeah. this wasn't a money-making venture for me. Right. This was saying, 
what's a way to do something really interesting at my age, right? That will have a, a long kind of history. And then it really came home to me when I said, golly gosh, that's my story. That's what I did. And it brought me back to really what was probably that, I know that I had a lot of happy years in my life, but probably the two or three happiest years of my life. When I bought that house, got married, had our first child, they all fit together. And that house was the encircled all those beautiful events. Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, Derek, is that, you know, you've always been built that way. But, you know, this year at this point in your life and your career and your business that, you know, you get to look and say, how can I be an even bigger contribution? You know, you've got 40 years in the real estate industry. You understand it, you know, intimately. Uh, you've got kids and now grandkids and they've got friends and they've got friends. And you really are kind of tapping into a, a gap and going, well, hold it. We've got this problem in a country that I can be a contribution to helping solve. And I think this is a great contribution. So uh, I really appreciate what you've uh, brought to the table today. So uh, thanks again for your time. Well, th no, thank you very much. And God bless you, Patrick, and your, your family and, and, and all your listeners and partners. Thanks, pal. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.